When you do the math problems at the back of a chapter in an algebra textbook, you are problem solving. If the chapter is entitled Systems of Two Equations with Two Unknowns, you know exactly which method to use. In such a constrained situation, the pertinent context in which to view the problem has already been determined, so there is no effort of interpretation required. But in the real world, problems don't present themselves in this pre-digested way. Usually there is too much information, and it is difficult to know what is pertinent and what isn't. Knowing what kind of problem you have on hand means knowing what features of the situation can be ignored. Even the boundaries of what counts as the situation can be ambiguous. Making discriminations of pertinence cannot be achieved by the application of rules and requires the kind of judgment that comes with experience. The value and job security of the mechanics lie in the fact that he has this first-hand personal knowledge. That quote is from the opening section of the book Shop Class as Soul Craft, and it struck me because of how similar it was to a story that Richard Feynman uh, tells in his book, So What Do You Care What Other People Think? And in this story, Feynman is recalling an instance where his cousin was having trouble with algebra, and, and his cousin's parents hired a tutor to help his cousin solve these algebra problems. And Feynman had no problem with the, with the problems. He was able to solve them himself, but he wasn't using the, the formulas. He wasn't using the predetermined rules that this tutor was teaching his cousin. And Feynman points out that if you're only taught these procedures, you'll, you'll get the right answer, but you won't know how to apply that to other, other areas. You won't have uh, the capacity to really solve problems. And this is what this opening passage echoes. It's that school can sometimes limit our problem-solving abilities because it gives us things in this pre-digested way, this way where we expect to solve a problem in a certain way. And if we do it any other way, well, then that's good for us. It's good practice, but it's not in a predetermined way. And that really struck me as I'm helping my daughters with their homework after school and how I face the own problems in my life. Okay, let's get to the notes. One. One idea that has come up a few times in some recent readings is this idea of what is your most important thing and how much should you focus on that. It's been in the front of my mind because of some own things that I'm working through, whether or not to expand this podcast or my blog as a business. What would that look like? How could I serve customers? And also is about some of the relationships that I have and even basic things like cooking. I'm thinking about how, how do I learn to cook from scratch more and what does that mean? And, and, and this idea of having a few most important things and really focusing on them and doing them well was in the book In-N-Out about the In-N-Out burger franchise. The founder of In-N-Out was Harry Snyder and this is the advice that he often gave. Quote, keep it real simple. Do one thing and do it the best you can, end quote. Harry Snyder passed the business on to his son, Rich Snyder, and Rich said much the same thing. Quote, it's hard enough to sell burgers, fries, and drinks, right? And when you start adding things, it gets worse, end quote. So we have these, these two in-and-out uh, executives and presidents who say, you know, just keep it simple. Just focus on the burgers and the fries, have a clean restaurant, have fresh ingredients, and have great customer service, and those are the things you need to do. Don't worry about anything else. And in his 
talk about the psychology of misjudgment, Charlie Munger said much the same thing. This is what Munger said. Quote, I don't want to get into emerging markets, bond arbitrage, and so forth. I'm talking about nothing but plain vanilla stock picking. That, believe me, is complicated enough. And I'm talking about common stock picking, end quote. So in, in the two Schneiders and in Charlie Munger, we have this idea that the thing that you're doing probably has an unlimited depth to it. You can go really far and really deep in understanding your situation and understanding the context and the history and the nuances of what you're doing. And for the Snyders and for Munger, that's all the farther you need to go. If you just focus on those things, there's plenty for you to focus on there. You can go as deep as you want to. But sometimes, and I'm really really susceptible to this. It's tempting to go wide. It's tempting to spread out and try something new. And in my own life, I'm trying to figure out what, what's the balance of that? When can I go deep? For example, when can I do a lot more writing and write more short books and write more longer books and write more monthly reports and so forth like that versus going wide where I could have a podcast and for a while I experimented with a Snapchat channel that was book reviews and so forth. So it's an interesting idea to think about is how much depth do you want to get out of the thing you're interested in and how much width do you want to get out of that thing? And both the Schneiders as they opened their chain of restaurants and Munger uh, reminded me of that. Two. Another relation to the work you do and how you work came from uh, an interview that Patrick O'Shaughnessy did with James and Trish Higgins on his podcast, Invest Like the Best. And James Higgins is a uh, private equity specialist. He owns a private equity company called Chenmark Capital and he was talking with O'Shaughnessy about the value you get from the type of investments he makes, where he buys a company and then he helps run that company. He buys companies that are successful based on, uh, you know, three or four things that he mentioned in the podcast, like is it geographically close? Does it have an owner-operator? Does it have a lot of contracts? Or is the business going to be subject to low variability on the seasonality? And as he explained those things, he said that if you can get these things right, investing in a single business can be incredibly rewarding uh, financially and spiritually. And what he said was, quote, When you go down market, there is a premium associated with rolling up your sleeves and getting in the weeds and making things happen. That process is something we really enjoy, end quote. Here, Higgins is explaining that there's a higher premium to be earned if you're willing to do more work, and he says that it's work that he actually enjoys doing. It's this day-to-day -day interaction. It's making the trains run on time. It's rolling up your sleeves. And if you can find a situation where you get paid more for doing work that other people don't want to do, well, well, all the better for you. You get to extract this premium, and it doesn't necessarily cost you anything. You don't have this mental obstacle about doing the work. Another hamburger book I finished this month was uh, Ray Kroc's story, Grinding It Out, about McDonald's. And Kroc loved to work. He loved to, to sell and to travel and to grow. And, and the, the biggest example is McDonald's. But before that, he sold this multi-mixer to McDonald's and other restaurant chains. And before that, he sold paper cups and other paper products for different restaurants and soda shops. So 
Croc always enjoyed the grind. He always enjoyed the work. He always liked to hustle and talk business. And, and if you find something like that, if you find a situation where you just enjoy doing the work, that can be really helpful for the work you do. It can motivate you. It can keep you going when things get hard. And things always will get hard. In that same interview with James Higgins, he was on with his wife, Trish Higgins, and, and Trish explained that they understand what they're doing is hard, and they understand what they're doing is relatively new. Not a lot of other people are doing it, so there's no series of best practices or anything like that that they can follow. So what they're trying to do is adopt a mindset, a certain way of knowing that problems are going to come up and how they can solve those problems as they come up. This is what she said. Sort of have the philosophy that, you know, we're trying to build something, and if things go wrong, we'll figure it out. And having that mentality of just sort of, well, if something doesn't work the way we expect it to, or things are bad, we'll figure it out, and we'll be there for each other, is pretty much, you know, and let's just move forward, is how it manifests itself for us, you know. Similar to what Trish said was something that... Minaj Bhargava said on the How I Built This podcast. And Bhargava is the founder and creator of 5-Hour Energy. And he gave a, a very interesting interview. I'm going to share some notes on that interview on the, my blog, thewaiterspad.com. But it was specifically his advice at the end that really struck me. And he said that entrepreneurs need to do three things. They need to, one, use their common sense and don't use MBA speak. You don't need... You don't need anyone that says it has the secrets to solving a problem. There are no secrets to solving problems. It's really just a lot of trial and error and effort and this mindset that, that Trish Higgins mentions of the ability to solve problems, not to avoid problems. Another thing that Bhargava says is that you need a sense of urgency. You need to not wait. You need to do it now. And then the third really important thing for entrepreneurs is that you need to be completely determined. And in his own words, this is what he said in the podcast. You have to be totally determined. I hate the word passionate because <laughs> you get hit in the face a few times, passion seems to fade. Determination means basically you, you your face hits the floor 20 times, you get up 21 times. You know, you just get up every time. No matter what happens, you get up and do it again. I've started to compare this in my writings to the work of Sisyphus. Sisyphus was someone who was... Uh, sentenced to rolling a boulder up the hill, but each day or each moment when the boulder gets to the top of the hill, it rolls back down. And so Sisyphus's job is never complete, and our jobs are never complete. Ray Kroc writes in his book that business isn't like a painting a picture. You don't get to put on the final brush strokes, hang it on the wall, and then admire it. Business and life and relationships and commitments and practices and hobbies are all continual. They're all Sisyphusian. Everything is never finished. You have to keep working at those things. And if you don't like the things that you're working at, you need to find a new boulder or you need to find a new hill to roll up. And sometimes you get to make those choices. Sometimes you can choose a job or a relationship with absolute flexibility. And other times you're more restrained. But whatever it is, you need to adopt the right mindset that you'll get back up if you fall down or that you'll solve a problem as it comes up or that you'll roll the boulder back up the hill. Three. Recently, I also finished Danny Meyer's book, Setting the Table, and 
Meyer's book is a really, really nice summary of a lot of the things that I've noticed about founders and startups and people who create their own thing and people who work for themselves. And in the book, Meyer explains how he went about creating this restaurant empire in New York City that includes Blue Smoke and Shake Shack and the restaurants at the Museum of Modern Art. And what Meyer's early career was like, what his origin story was like, was, was really similar to uh, some other things that I've, that I've read. For starters, he had really good training. He, he had the ex first-hand experience of hospitality. So as a kid, he realized that he really liked to cook. Even at summer camp, he was entering into the end-of-week baking competition where different uh, cabins had a contest to see who could bake the, mo the best cake. And Myers, uh, Myers Cake ultimately won. Well, he, he grew up and he went to school and after college he got a job in sales. But he had always had a soft spot in his heart for the hospitality industry. As a college student, he worked for his father who ran tours of Europe, so he would take tourists off the beaten path, and he knew all the best places to eat, and then he would live in Europe for a time, and he would eat at the places that served the best food, not the places that had the most Michelin stars or anything like that. After college, and after his job in sales, he took a cooking class, and Meyer writes, quote, I couldn't take in the information quickly enough, end quote. So Meyer has a situation where he really wants to do the thing he's doing. He's got this boulder that he enjoys pushing up the hill, and the boulder is, is learning more about food and learning more about restaurants and operating restaurants. So he gets started uh, doing kitchen tasks that no one else wanted once he starts his career in uh, the culinary industry. And he didn't start out doing the fun stuff. He started off in, in the backwater. This is what Meyer writes, quote, I did those kitchen tasks no one else wanted to do and in which there was no fear that my rudimentary kitchen skills might lead to disaster, end quote. The backwater is a place where a lot of people find their success. Both Bethany McLean and Kara Swisher started in the backwater of journalism, but they're... they're popular commentators now. They're people who have respected opinions because they've developed their skills even though they weren't in a place necessarily at the start that was uh, front and center. Meyer also learned that there are different incentives for different people. He says he volunteered on a political campaign and he found out that people didn't necessarily want to be paid. They wanted to have their ideas recognized, and they wanted to work for some set of ideals that they had inside themselves. And so he realized as he grew his restaurants that if you provided people a great place to work with a fun attitude, and you were on their side, and you tried to work with them to solve problems, that that was rewarding to people. People still need to be paid, but there's other things that you can compensate people with. At this point in Meyer's career and in his life, he has a, a nice handful of experiences that he can draw on. So he decides to open his first restaurant. About the first opening, Meyer says that he really got lucky. Quote, I would also have the good fortune of entering the restaurant industry during its fertile period of revolutionary change, end quote. We need to remember that the conditions that surround a business or a situation or a relationship really matter. It's much like the weather in an ecosystem can affect how a population surges or recedes. And that was the case for Meyer entering the restaurant industry in New York. 
the different parts of New York that he opened his restaurant and were, were kind of run down. They weren't the most popular places to be. So he was able to find a location that didn't have an excess rent that would impose Trent Griffin's term wholesale transfer pricing. That is, the landlord could raise the rent and the tenant couldn't do anything about it. So Meyer gets started and he gets a relatively cheap enough rent and he has enough connections, he has enough positive relationships within the industry to find a head chef and he keeps his, his costs relatively low. Meyer soon opened Union Square Cafe and he found out that some of those early lessons uh, came back to be really helpful. For example, they had something at the restaurant called the Medicine Cabinet, and the Medicine Cabinet was a place where they stored dessert wines. Dessert wines weren't popular at the time in the United States. It was something that was mostly a, a European habit, but Meyer was able to offer a glass of these dessert wines to patrons who had to wait longer or who didn't have the best of service experiences or, um, you know, any number of reasons that somebody needed to be comped a glass of wine. And Meyer knew from his time of leading tours in Europe that if he told people that this is a European thing or this is a special thing or not a lot of people get this, it would increase the value of what he was doing. So if he took his tourists to an off-the-beaten-path bodega and he told them that, they enjoyed that a lot more. And if he served a glass of dessert wine to people and he told them that this was a European tradition, that enhanced the value of that glass. Union Square Cafe succeeded and Meyer decided to expand his restaurants. He decided to open more locations. And he had a really good question for dealing with Chesterton fences and Gordian knots. If you don't remember or you're new to the podcast, a Chesterton fence is this idea of not destroying anything or removing something until you know why it was put there in the first place. And it comes from the story that G.K. Chesterton tells about two men walking along an old dirt path and they come across uh, a fence in the woods and one man wants to knock it down while they're there and the other man says, well, you should figure out why it was built first before you knock it down. The concept of Gordian knots comes from the story of Alexander and Alexander enters the city of Gordia and there's a knot tied there and, and the... Uh, the story goes that whoever can untie this knot shall reign over the region. And Alexander looks at the knot, and it's just a huge, huge mess. And the story goes that he takes his sword out and he cuts it in half. And that's part of the reason Alexander went on to, to rule that part of the world. And our takeaways from these two fables is from the Chesterton Fence one is to not destroy something until we know why it was there. And from the Gordian Knot one, it's to say, well... We don't need to untie this knot. Let's just cut it out and start fresh. So Meyer asks himself, whoever wrote the rule? So he uses this whoever wrote the rule idea to answer the Chesterton fence question. And then if it's not a good reason, he just cuts it out. And he says, I'm not following that rule. I'm not doing anything like that. For example, whoever wrote the rule that you can't have a high quality burger served in a park? Nobody wrote that rule. So we have Shake Shack. Whoever wrote the rule that you can't have good barbecue in the middle of a city next to a jazz club? It's not a rule. You could do that if you want. And Meyer did it. It's how he created blue smoke. And whoever wrote the rule that you can't have good food in a museum? Well, and no one. That was just sort of how things were done. And Meyer has restaurants in the Museum of Modern Art now. One idea that Meyer had, one of the ways that he 
he asked whoever wrote the rule was to open an Indian restaurant in New York City. And at the time, there weren't many Indian restaurants, but Meyer didn't know if, if this is where he should really focus his efforts. So he got on Zagat, and he noticed that the best score for an Indian restaurant in 1997 was a 24 out of 30. And this showed him that there wasn't much competition, that there was a wide open market for uh, something like that. At the same time that he's opening all of these restaurants, he's trying to rein himself in to only accept the best opportunities. So the Zagat score showed him there was an opportunity for an Indian restaurant, but he created a set of rules that he had to follow so that he didn't just chase any opportunity. He didn't suffer from what Brent Bishore said is progress anxiety. And some of Meyer's rules were that the restaurant had to be excellent within its niche. It had to be something that was unique to a special kind of food, and it had to be great at doing that. Another rule was that any restaurant could not diminish Union Square Cafe, so the first restaurant he had still had to maintain its pillar of excellence and not be diminished by something new. Another one was that any new restaurant must not be a big-time commitment from Meyer himself. He had taken a lot of effort to hire the right people, and in the book he goes into what exactly that looks like, hiring the right people. And he spent time creating systems that worked. And so he wanted any new restaurant to work within these systems that he spent time to create. The fourth rule, which was kind of an unofficial rule from the book, I picked it up somewhere else, was that any restaurant had to be close to Union Square Cafe. Meyer wanted to be able to walk to all of his restaurants that he was opening as they went along so that he could keep his eyes on them. He had to uh, keep watching them. If we refer back to another restaurant tour we talked about, Harry Snyder, the founder of In-N-Out, had his house right across the street from In-N-Out. His, um, his book says that he would be watching TV, and if he saw the line get too long at In-N-Out restaurant, he would go ahead and um, run over there and help the staff. Later on, as In-N-Out expanded, Harry would go and visit these different restaurants and check on things when they were going well. And if things were really going well, he would give cash bonuses to the workers in the restaurant as a thank you for the excellent work they were doing. Those are the three big ideas from this week. Number one, what are your most important things? And should you go deeper on those most important things or should you try to go wider? Number two is, do you do work that you enjoy? Because the work is never going to end. It's going to be like Sisyphusian's boulder, and it's going to roll down the hill, and you're going to have to get up and do it again tomorrow. And number three, Danny Meyer wrote an excellent book that's about restaurants, but really can be applied to any business out there. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes.